Welcome back to the Zero Hour. I'm George Kimiti, and this week my compatriot Ashley Stone was out. I recorded this live in New Brunswick, Canada. We were in Fredericton, and this is with Heather McLean, who is a professor and award-winning marketing and comms professional, and she has worked in cybersecurity uh, and now data privacy, and she is the CMO at TaylorMade Works in uh, Canada. But this conversation was uh, super interesting. She has a unique perspective, um, especially when it comes to the two worlds between marketing comms, communicating with the public, and cybersecurity. And we also dig into issues of uh, diversity and recruiting in the cybersecurity field. So without further ado, here's Heather McLean. All right, welcome to the podcast. I have with me today Heather McLean of TaylorMade Solutions. Welcome uh, to the Zero Hour. Thank you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? You have a varied background that touches both uh, cybersecurity and marketing, something that we're very interested in because we see social channels as owned by marketing but as a, as a new attack surface. So let's just start out with... Um, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, Started out pretty much in marketing and communications. Uh, I've worked in private sector. I've worked in public sector. I've worked for a publicly traded company um, responsible for um, communications and and also uh, being the public face of uh, Mm -hmm. $1.6 billion corporation. Um, And actually created the first social media accounts for a Canadian utility. Oh, and that was interesting in itself, a whole other story. (laughs) And from there, just continued on evolving into various aspects of marketing communication, um, developed uh, social strategy and uh, digital strategy for a government agency, Mm -hmm. and then was hired by uh, another uh, subsequent government agency to do theirs, uh, and then kind of transcended into cybersecurity as part of Cyber Envy. which is really a passion of mine, and privacy, actually. Uh, those are two areas that have, have fascinated me for years, been writing about it, got very involved in it, and actually led the Skills and Workforce Development Program, one of its kind for cybersecurity in North America. Cool. So was your um, that intersection with Cyber NB, so for our listeners, that's Cyber New Brunswick, which is um, headquartered here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, in Canada, and is a, a world-renowned center of cybersecurity excellence, was the touch point into cybersecurity as it related to uh, marketing cyber NB or it was an outgrowth of privacy? It was kind of both. Initially, it was I was leading the marketing initiative mm-hmm. uh, to get the word out about Cyber NB when it was launched in May 2016 to create the whole brand and persona of the organization and make sure that it was known locally, regionally, and internationally. And um, privacy was a big component of it. I was the privacy officer as well Mm -hmm. for the organization and then really evolved into the skills and workforce development as being the fundamental foundational piece uh, for making sure that we have uh, talent and skills for the cybersecurity companies and Mm non-cybersecurity companies that we have here in the province. Cool. And I guess I'm interested in, you know, we find that Sometimes we're talking with security teams. Sometimes we're talking with marketing teams. More often than not, 
marketing departments um, don't have that hat on. They don't see the world through the same uh, lens that security teams do. Because you straddle both of those worlds, have have you seen either your marketing colleagues or uh, marketing communities, has security become more uh, of a prominent topic or or do you still see kind of a bifurcation between those two worlds? I would love to say that I would have this conversation and see it more with marketing professionals, but mm-hmm. I still see a lot of marketing professionals that the light bulb has not come on for them yet. And I should mention I'm also a professor, and I I work with my students because I teach marketing and communications, and it's something I ingrain into what they're doing because it will give them a leg up. Um, but even initially, most of them think, what do I have to be concerned about privacy for? I'm not. I have nothing to hide. Um, it's not going to impact me when I'm in the work world. They don't get it, mm. and so I think it's not just students that are in that that uh, scenario. There are many, many marketing practitioners that just see that they have targets to hit, and mm. they're not thinking about the implications of privacy or security or how they're a first line of defense for the organization to help protect the organization and its assets and its IP. Yes, precisely. I mean, we, we um, would sing this till we're blue in the face, but if you consider that all, almost all marketing now, I mean, yes, there's still some offline, but so many of the marketing dollars have moved into the digital space, whether it's advertising or just direct engagement on social. And we now see daily new phishing attacks, new hacks through social. That is the first line of defense. I mean, my personal sort of armchair psychology is that maybe, you know, marketing is more attractive to outgoing personalities versus, you know, systems engineers, which are looking at a problem and trying to study it from the inside. Um, But uh, we're really hoping to see this inflection point because currently CMOs have more budget for technology stacks than CIOs or CISOs have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's just the unknown and not people still don't make that connection until it happens to them. Yes. It's like life insurance, right? right? (laughs) Why do I need it? I'm healthy. Right. But people have been better informed and better trained Mm -hmm. to have life insurance. Right. We're not there yet with cybersecurity and privacy. Yeah, and it's interesting. We've we've um, sold brand protection to companies, and sometimes brand protection is under the auspice of cyber, and sometimes it's under social governance, which kind of wraps up eventually into the the CMO's remit. So it's interesting that even at like the world's leading companies, they still haven't decided who owns what or even how to how to collaborate. And I think it's a I. I think every every person in an organization has a role to play in cybersecurity. Wait, wait, I want I want you to repeat that because we just talked we just we talk about this all the time. It's everyone's responsibility. Everyone's responsibility is cybersecurity and privacy. Mm-hmm. Everyone. And again, we're not stressing that enough and people aren't making that connection. So our our best defense in cybersecurity is that first line defense of our employees. Yes. We have to inform them, we have to train them, they have to know what to look for. Um, just because it's a, a hot topic and a, a cool, sexy sounding uh, link, mm-hmm. don't click on Protect it. Protect your people, secure your enterprise. Right. right. Like the people are the new attack surface. Right. Um, at, the, at the executive level, what would you um, either teach in your classes or what would you advocate 
for those teams collaborating? Like, should the how does the CMO engage the CIO or whoever's responsible for security and then vice versa? Well, I think the first thing that has to happen is we have to stop looking at looking at it as a competition. Mm -hmm. And they should be partners. Right. Rather than siloed and competing for dollars and competing for attention, it has to be a partnership. Easier said than done. But if if this if the CISO and the CMO can understand that they impact each other and support each other, they have to be partners. And does that directive come from the CEO? So you two need to get along and figure this it's out. It's got to be built into the culture. Mm -hmm. It can't be just, um, again, people working in silos. It's got to be part of the culture. It has to be, you know, we talk about collaboration. We talk about EQ. These are all things that we have to do. We have to have the critical thinking and we have to have that collaboration more than ever. I mean, that's tricky. Culture is tricky to change. I think we have a lot of new companies coming up that have either grown up with these risks or they've seen that. But then when you go into these large enterprise organizations that are quick to adopt technology as a revenue driver, they're it's really hard to turn that boat, right? Like the big ship is very slow to turn in terms of, okay, you, you've cottoned on to this digital technology, but what comes with that is the need to break down all these traditional silos that you've had. But the other piece of that too is we as consumers, whether it's B2B or B2C, we have to start demanding more of mm -hmm. technology providers. Yes, And absolutely. when I say that, it has to be security by design and privacy by design in from the beginning and that's not happening and i i think we've had we as a company have had a warmer reception in europe than i think i initially expected but i i think that is an immediate outgrowth of gdpr Absolutely. putting a price on these considerations so suddenly i mean it's just a pressure point right mm -hmm. and whether it's uh consent um whether it's uh, privacy opt-in it just put a spotlight on social and just online behavior in general that now anyone is willing to sit up and listen because there are very real and terrible <laughs> uh, fines for that. And this that. is the only way that we're going to cause an action to happen is mm -hmm. companies have to feel it. Yep. If, if you know you say that privacy and security is important, but you say, tisk tisk, you had a, a breach, mm -hmm. don't do it again. But if you're levied with a significant fine then boards of directors are going to start thinking about it. And that's the other thing. Boards of directors have to be held accountable. Yeah, They have to be kept up at night thinking, holy crap, are we going to have a security breach? And what does this mean? How right. many of our or, customers or are going to be are impacted? are we just collecting data that we're not supposed to be collecting? Right. Um, yes, that's interesting. I'm, I'll admit to my ignorance. Does Is there any legislation either currently on the books or working its way through parliament with respect to a gdpr level or data protection act there's some revisions that have been made to privacy laws in canada but are we're not anywhere near gdpr mm -hmm. i think california will be the next one that's yes. close to it i'm i'm sort of hoping that california is you know as goes california so goes because the market right. is so enormous it, it's the ninth largest right. economy in the world it's going to have a, a positive impact right yeah, I would like to see the Canadian laws be, um, you know, strengthened quite a bit, but mm -hmm. we're not there yet. Interesting. Um, well, let's turn our attention to uh, a, another topic inside of cybersecurity. So 
um we'll just we'll just kind of confront that elephant in the room which is uh the lack of diversity in the field mm -hmm. um so whether it's reflecting on the student body that you teach or your work experience uh curious to know your thoughts on how we can open up the field or make it more welcoming not only gender diversity but sort of diversity across, across the board. board you know it's an interesting one because uh last december i actually uh, did a round table with um uh, willis college out of uh, ottawa and a couple other private sector companies um right here in this building that we're in right now mm -hmm. and it was a major snowstorm i thought great no one's going to come but we had teachers we had parents we had young girls who participated in cyber titan which is the equivalent of yes. cyber patriot in yep. the u.s um, so I was very pleased at the turnout that we had and we had uh, university students and it was a really good conversation because it was about diversity across the board and it comes down to some simple things, but at the same time, these simple things aren't being transferred into tangible differences that are making results. So some things like language, mm -hmm. what language is being used when we're doing recruiting? It has been proven that certain terms will attract males versus females. Um, well, I can't give you an example. That's very interesting. To um, I can't think one right offhand, but it could be, are you driven by sales uh, performance? There you go. Females yes. may not be as attracted to that language, but it's, are you, a female might be more attracted to, are you willing or are you interested in making a difference? Interesting. Fascinating. It is. And these are proven to be... Um, terms and, and ways of communicating that will attract different people. Um, you know, thinking about uh, making sure that your environment is attractive to diversity. Mm -hmm. So do you only have men's washrooms or do you only have a unisex washroom? Like what is it that you're doing? The simple things that can really make a difference. Um, getting more people involved in how the culture is being developed. Uh, not only having you know, uh, a singular focused on perhaps all white males. Yes. Um, getting more people engaged from the bottom up and having those conversations so that you're thinking about the differences. You know, all too often as a female, I've been sitting in a room with a group of men and I have a very different perspective. And thankfully for me, I've worked in environments where they're, they think, okay, we hadn't thought about that. That's, mm. that's a really good point. But not everyone has that experience. And... I wrote a blog post after that um, roundtable just talking about some ways, you know, the differences in language and so on. And I was actually attacked. And I wrote on LinkedIn and I was attacked by an individual who said it was the most uh, sexist and racist post you'd ever read. Okay. And I sat back <laughs> and I'm thinking, how is talking about inclusive, inclusivity, mm -hmm. using language and bringing people to the table and having a conversation sexist and racist? It, it blew my mind. Yeah, there's plenty of that on the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess I'm I've been in meetings where, you know, uh, I used to work at a marketing agency, and they'll be talking about either the customer, or, and it's just these casual things where we're talking in abstract concepts, but the person is always referred to as he. Yes, I'm like, well, I mean, that that feels like you've already put a certain uh, prism on whatever you're going to view as either the outcome or what you want or whatever. And just these tiny changes of just saying alternating either he, she or saying they, they or yeah. just like 
opening your imagination to other possibilities. Absolutely. But you're right. Language is, is probably where it needs to start. Right. That's how we build the world. But it's groupthink, right? So when you have everyone sitting around a table that looks the same, mm-hmm. of course you're going to have the he. Right. Yeah. Or it's, um, oh, we need to go market to the CISO. You know, he's really worried about, it's like, well, there are, there are female CISO out there. You know? It's like, um, that's a big thing. And I, I've, it's more apparent to me. Uh, we've taken some steps as a company, but it's very apparent to me and glaringly. So at conferences, mm-hmm. um, where every panel is just men or it's, um, uh, the, I've seen a panel on like the skills and gender gap and it's three men and one woman. <laughs> like, on paper how did that look right to you you know and it just i think it just escapes people again getting more diversity involved in the planning Mm -hmm. perhaps that wouldn't have happened yes and also at the at the bottom up level so when i worked for an agency you know i was trying to confront this problem and they said well we go to these uh universities and we don't really stipulate anything we're not we're trying to be very open i was like yes but those universities have a lot of unconscious bias built in, right? You're drawing from affluent suburbs and they're pulling from these parts of the state. Like what about these other universities? Like what about, you know, Howard university has an IT department or like these other metropolitan centers that we weren't even looking at. It's the source. So when you pull from the source, you just sort of compound whatever bias is built into that, into that institution. And I was I was surprised to see when this um, this roundtable that we had and speaking to the Cyber Titan girls, um, these were um, you know grade seven, grade eight girls. They were talking about some of the biases that they were already seeing, where boys were saying, "You can't do this. Why are you in this competition?" Mm-hmm. So it really surprised me to see that we're still seeing this a generation or two behind. Yeah. And what do we need to do to change that? Yeah, I think and. There was a lot of effective research in showing that, um, you know, somebody will counter with, well, we're trying to do STEM, but we just don't have girls in those classes. But if you track from in the States, kindergarten through 12th grade, there's this drop off um, at about eighth grade. Same here. And okay, what's causing that drop off? And you keep rolling it back, rolling it back. And um all these little actions like telling girls, oh, don't get your dress dirty, um, you know, but boys play in the mud and valuing like the grass stains on the knee. And it's just these tiny moments of undermining that eventually accumulate to where there's this critical mass of doubt. And you're like, well, I guess I'm I'm not supposed to do science or I'm not supposed to do engineering. And what are the role models that they're seeing? There are a lot of great female role models, but mm. we're not telling that story enough. Yes, correct. Like what on the, on the walls of the, uh, of the biology room, like who are the scientists up on the wall, right? Or in chemistry, wherever. Um, Girls need to see someone that they can say, that's someone like me. Mm-hmm. Or it's the same thing with, you know, the, Barbie has done, they've gone out and they've gone away from only having the blonde haired mm-hmm. white Barbie. Yes. Cause girls need to see role models and they need to see, um, images that reflect them. Yes. I, yes. It's all a, a question of popular imagination. If you cannot imagine yourself in that space, then it's sort of difficult to aspire to that, to that space. Right. Um, are there, so that was uh, an event, a round table here. Are there any other, um, 
long-term or sort of school initiatives in New Brunswick that you know of that are working to try and counter these these biases? Yeah, Cyber Titan is definitely one of them. And uh, they particularly, the, the, the resources working in that field, target females. Mm-hmm. Um, they want them to be part of it. And more and more, we're having um, all-girl teams, which is fantastic. And uh, I think more of that has to happen, but I think we need to showcase them more. We have to show other girls that there are all-girl teams and that it's a cool thing for them to do. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Cyber Titan in case they're unaware of the Cyber Patriot program? Sure. So um, actually, Cyber Patriot started in the U.S. with a few teams that were uh, created with uh, high school students, I believe, to do ethical hacking. Mm-hmm. And it grew... Uh, grew leaps and bounds to where Northrop Grumman actually underwrites it in the U.S. And it's a it's a become a global competition now. So in Canada, we call it Cyber Titan. And last year, there were, uh, I'm just trying to remember, there were something like 190 teams and 126 or 130 of them came from New Brunswick. Yes, I am enormously impressed with what New Brunswick has done to cultivate this um this community here in this industry and it was extremely impressive. I think a lot of places talk about, oh, we want to make uh, this place attractive for talent. We want to build this skill set, but I, I have not seen execution like I've seen it here. It's very impressive. It is, and and what we did was um, we have when I was part of CyberMB and they're they're still there. Uh, we actually had teachers on secondment to mm-hmm. CyberMB, and they're still in the school system. They're still working, but we're working specifically on developing curricula. curricula for the cyber, um, for K to 12. And we had a, a, a hero called Cyber. And she, uh, she had a, a blanket that would turn into a cloak that she could cover kids and stop time so they could stop and think before Excellent. they acted. Yeah. Very good. And so there was all this curricula being developed around it. And Cyber Titan is a part of it. So we go out and actively promote it for teams that go in the first time. Cyber MB actually pays for them. Great. Yes. I, th- I think that's a. I mean, I, I was aware of a couple of companies here in Fredericton. Um, you know, Sysmos had an office here and Salesforce had an office here in Radian 6. So I, th- I think if I, as an outsider, it's probably an outgrowth of that tech industry that you just had a lot of tech talent in this, in this town. But it's just very refreshing and surprising to see the level of intention in, okay, we have this. How do we double down? Right. And how do we invest in that? And the school thing is interesting in particular. We read an article recently about how Finland is trying to combat disinformation through technological means, but it's also a whole society effort. So they've tried to, from kindergarten through uh, the university level, teaching skills, teaching awareness about how to spot like bots or bot behavior. Um, and I do think that that's the future is that it has to be a whole society effort. I would agree. I mean, people keep talking about, oh, we're becoming a digital society. No, we are a di- digital society. Yeah, we've been there. <laughs> exactly. Everything we do from entertainment to banking to shopping is all online. We have to inform and train and educate society to spot issues. I know so many people, elderly people who have fallen for the so-called Microsoft Norton, um, Google, mm-hmm. you name it. I know one person that fell for fell for that six times. Yeah, they were different organizations supposedly, but I believe it was the same person calling back. Yeah, and it's yeah. I think we it's probably true 
of a lot of technologies, flying cars. It's just the rate at which we adopted digital without knowing the risks or the risks weren't illuminated because it took a level of time before criminals took yeah, over. people figured out how to abuse it. Um, but we just haven't caught up there. And, and one of the things that we talk about with our government clients is yes, clearly agencies needed to adopt social to communicate because that's where the people were, right? You could, what were you going to do is send a press release when everyone was looking at Twitter or Facebook? Okay, great. So, but we just spun up these accounts without realizing that essentially official communications are going through what is fundamentally an unsecured cloud network. If I, if I just wrote that out on paper before you'd adopted it, that would have freaked every security team out. But there was this imperative to go out and communicate with people properly. So now we're doing a lot of um, retro, retrofitting of yes. security. And then you look at all the, all the students coming out of um, high school and university and colleges. You know, they're coming into the work world and everyone says, oh, they know social. They grew up with social but they don't know social from a business perspective mm -hmm. and the risks associated with it. So again, it comes back to that first line of defense and helping to make sure that you have the right tools in place to protect the IP of the organization, the individuals of the organization. And it's, it's amazing to me how many organizations fail to see that connection. And the corollary there is, yes, they know social, but that also comes with it a higher propensity to share. Absolutely. So what oversharing. Right. What data is is leaving the organization? What kind of information is being posted in these channels? Um, and then, you know, anyone who's listening to this who's uh under twenty-five, I would challenge you to ask when was the last time you stepped inside a bank? Right. And so to your point of the digital life, you've got a lot of connected accounts like you have some single sign-on issues there uh which we saw with like the big facebook breach like how many people use facebook to authenticate into their other platforms and then um now we enter a, a time period of, of connected devices your data is going to be flowing through multiple things inside your house and then you add to it bring bring your own device to work right and what does that add to the mix yeah and i think we've seen a couple of uh c-level security people kind of freeze in the headlights once you you they say like well i just block social with my firewall and i was like and how's that working for you on a saturday at the starbucks across the street right <laughs> it's like oh right why are we using network technology to protect something that is not a network infrastructure um cool well um let's turn our attention to our final question which we ask of all of our guests which is knowing what you know you're you're in the trenches you're um on the front line pick your metaphor uh what is it that keeps you up at night this is something i discuss with my students all the time what keeps me up all at night is the fact that people are so trusting and then it comes into being naive, mm -hmm. thinking that platforms have built-in security and that the platforms are going to take care of their privacy and security. No, they're not. <laughs> but and they're not incentivized. To. No, and but it you know so many individuals believe that. Or on the privacy front, they'll say, "Well, I have nothing to hide, so I, I'll you know I don't care if I you know sign up for this app that's giving every personal detail about my life." 
And you just kind of click through the authorizations and it's like somebody told you about an app. Let's take uh, that face app. Face app, yeah. Right? It's like, oh, that's cool. That's funny. What is the name of that app again? I download it. Can it reach my photos? Yes. Did I bother to see that it was located in St. Petersburg? Did I bother to in the TNC that it said uh, we can't really control where your data goes once it goes to the cloud right. server? We can do with it what we will. I know security people who used that app before that article came out. And I was like, oh, why Why would you just assume that that app is, has all of your best interests in mind? And that's the thing. People, you know, we're so used to now having access to free stuff mm -hmm. that we think it's okay. Right. And we're not, we're not cautious of the ramifications or the implications. I think we're – so with the rise of WhatsApp, but then it's acquisition of Facebook, and now we have Telegram and Signal, I, I feel like – there is a wave that is beginning. It hasn't crested by any means, but that swell is beginning to happen where the companies coming up now see that level of security by design or privacy by design as a competitive advantage, mm -hmm. right? It's going to, it's going to be the thing that drives their revenue and their adoption. Is. I hope so. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. The other uh, thing that keeps me up at night is how many people don't realize that their cameras on their computers can be hacked and they don't know. Right. And I particularly share that with people with children with computers in their bedroom. Yeah. Connected devices for kids is a terrifying prospect. Um, there was that one, um, I can't name them off the top of my head and I probably shouldn't on this podcast, but <laughs> there was that one company who had a whole bunch of webcams and toys and like, Every single one of them had like a simple bypass, right? You know, and and there were actually instances of people hacking the the baby cam and being able to like talk to the child, which yeah, is it's just terrifying. As the children, a parent yeah. is uh, yeah. alarming. Yeah. Um. Yes. So keep keep the the kids' room should be a skiff, right? right. <laughs> like Stone Age. Right. Um. Okay. Well, we try to end uh, on a high note. So, given what you've just told us. What is it that still gives you the most hope? The fact that we're talking about it as much as we are. Mm -hmm. And there are people that are, you know, they're starting to, the light bulb is coming on. So mm -hmm. I think we continue to educate, we continue to inform, we continue to talk about it. And more and more people will see the, see the light. And to your point, if it has to be a revenue source uh, or a revenue opportunity or a competitive advantage, great bring it on mm -hmm. if it means that more people will be protected yeah and i i yeah i feel like the generation that is teenagers now is now seeing enough headlines that is probably beginning to enter the public consciousness i, I remember an article that um, a celebrity who shall go unnamed got called out on her instagram for posting a picture of her daughter by her daughter like her daughter was in the comment saying, you can't post my pictures without my consent. And I was like, we have 18-year-olds trolling their parents about consent. Like, that is a, that is a bright moment. That's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the time. It has been a pleasure. Um, we've enjoyed our time here in New Brunswick, and we will certainly be back. Fantastic. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
All right. Well, my thanks to Heather for the time. Um, always good to hear from her. And I suspect that will not be uh, the last that we here at Safeguard Cyber hear from her. Um, but let's turn our attention to the news we're following this week. So out uh, today is disinformation in the 2020 election, how the social media industry should prepare. A new report out from the NYU Stern School of Business and the Center for Business and Human Rights. Really, really interesting read. What a fantastic report. And they also talk about uh, people's perceptions of trust in social media platforms and also where they think disinformation is being spread across the different platforms. Yes, I think it's interesting because it's not just um, a rehash of what we've seen. They take what we've seen and they really try to project out what will be in play for 2020. And since it's a business school, how the platforms themselves can begin to put in some either policing infrastructure or some ability to mitigate the threats as best they can. Right. And we're seeing disinformation campaigns as a as a new type of cyber warfare, so to speak. But there are other cyber attacks that we see more traditional. Back in June, it was re recently released, there was a secret cyber attack on Iran by the U.S. in which they cleared out a database that Iran was using to target oil tankers. Yeah. So I think we've seen yet more escalation in the U.S.-Iranian uh, cyberspace conflict, but we have also seen the U.S. take on more offensive capabilities rather than just holding the line um, or looking in defense. So um, I would not be surprised if we continue to hear more stories. And as we've seen, um, we usually get the story several months after the event. Right. Um, okay, so turning our attention to uh, lighter fare, I would say, um, over the weekend, Chinese face swapping app ZAO or Zhao um, sparked uh, some privacy concerns after going really viral. Uh, much like face app, this app uses the same kind of deep fake mapping technology to take an uploaded selfie and put the use end user's face on famous videos or GIFs. So imagine your face um, on Jon Snow's and Game of Thrones uh, or on any other celebrity. Anyway, in the um, user agreement, uh, which is the first one, which is now since deleted, um, it said that by uploading photos, you would agree to give Zhao full ownership and free, irrevocable, permanent, transferable, and relicensable license to all user-generated content and permit the developer to use their images for processing and marketing purposes, which is insane. And we saw a video of what the app does. Pretty cool, but probably don't want to give up all of those rights to use it. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting out of this is, once again, we see um, technology that appears so cool that people adopt it without bothering to read the user agreement or even understand its implications, especially tricky in a country known for building really deep facial recognition surveillance uh, infrastructure, um, and that's that can be problematic. But doubly interesting was the fact that WeChat blocked uh, this app in its use. So 
it would display a message to the user that said, this web page has been reported multiple times and contains security risks to maintain a safe online environment. Access to this page has been blocked, end quote. So, you know, we in the West may believe the Chinese market to be this homogenous community. I think this is very interesting that there were domestic privacy concerns and that the same debate that occurs on our side is occurring in these other countries. I think that's very important to remember. Agreed. Privacy first is always important. Yeah. So uh, with that, we will leave you this week and we will see you next time. As always, my thanks to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matias Cephaletti for our theme music. And until then, stay safe and read those user agreements. Over and out.